As Rabbi David says, sometimes hard things are truly hard things. And what's going on in Israel right now is a hard thing. Unfortunately, it's not an unexpected thing. And as a nation, we've been dealing with this for a long, long time. Actually, even before the formation of Israel, we were dealing with this. But let me um, update you a little bit on what has happened. I know some of you are quite in the know. Some of you are getting information, and as Brian said, it is changing on a momentary basis. As of, and I haven't gotten an update in the past 90 minutes, but as of that time, we know that at least 40 Israelis have been killed. At least 740 were wounded, and essentially what happened was a combined uh, overwhelming incursion into Israel, South Israel, by Hamas. Not only did they lob over, it appears right now, over 5,000 rockets in a very short period of time, they also were sending uh, paragliders and people over various barriers and checkpoints to infiltrate communities on the ground with terrorists, which is where most of the Israeli casualties have been. They haven't necessarily been IDF, they have been civilians as terrorists have been infiltrating homes and killing civilians, it truly is a heinous attack. Obviously, Israeli military has responded with massive airstrikes into Gaza. And when I say massive, massive. Prime Minister Netanyahu has said essentially that they are unequivocally at war. Those are new words. He said before that they would have a response, but I haven't heard from his lips in a long time that they are absolutely at war. The Hamas military commander, Mohammed Daif, he announced at the start of their operation, and I quote, this is the day of the greatest battle to end the last occupation on earth, obviously referring to Israel. He had actually made the comment that they had launched 5,000 rockets, and shortly after that, Islamic Jihad also stated that they had joined in the attacks as well. So this is not just Hamas, this is many of our enemies. Thankfully, the United States State Department has condemned the attacks, and they made a statement earlier saying the United States unequivocally condemns the unprovoked attacks by Hamas terrorists against Israeli citizens. There's never any justification for terrorism, and that is true. So thankfully, the United States government has responded to that. Now, all that sounds like horrible news if you take our king out of the equation. And I want you to put the king back into the equation. Will people die? Unfortunately. Will there be war? Most likely. Is the Lord out of control? Absolutely not. So our job as the Hamishakim, as the believers in the Messiah, as his family, and as part of the extension of Israel, is to pray for Israel, to pray for the soldiers, the young men and women, and the older middle-aged men and women, and the older, older men and women that are in the IDF, of which is made up of many Messianic believers. I was even listening to Joshua Aaron last night talk about how his daughter is now in her 14th month of the IDF. So his daughter, many of you know Joshua Aaron as a Messianic worship artist, his daughter is in the midst of the fray. So it is good that we pray. You said your friend has been called up, the reserves have been called up this morning. So pretty much everybody that has been IDF before that is in reserves is now put on notice that they could be made active duty at a momentary notice and some already have been called. So do we need to pray? Yes. But do we need to pray in faith? Yes. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like us to stand as one body. Let us stand with our brothers and sisters. Whether they are messianic or not, they are our brothers and sisters, are they not? And we are one body, we are one family, and we will entreat the God of heaven for the protection of Israel and for the safeguarding of our boys and our girls 
and of this nation. Our Father in heaven, rock and redeemer of the people Israel, bless the state of Israel with its promise of redemption. Shield it with your love, spread over it the shelter of your peace. Guide its leaders and advisors with your light, with your truth. Help them with your good counsel. Strengthen the hands of those who defend our holy land and deliver them and crown their efforts with triumph. Bless the land, though, with peace and all the inhabitants with lasting joy. Come soon, King Messiah. Take your throne. Our Father and our King, we do wholeheartedly ask for your protection. We ask for peace, but more than anything, we ask for your kingdom. And we know this kingdom right now is that which is on earth is not your kingdom. But we know those of us that are part of your kingdom can extend and be praying for the peace that is so needed. So we stand before you as your sons and your daughters entreating you for peace for our people and for the people of Israel and for the people even that are in Gaza, the innocents on all sides. We ask for peace. We ask for protection. And Father, we know you are a great and mighty and holy king, and we thank you for being king. You are king, and we serve you through the mighty and the holy name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Do keep them in prayer. Watch the events. Things will unfold quickly. It will be a very interesting time. All right. Seems a little bit of a heavy way to start a message, isn't it? Except I think it's the perfect way to focus in on exactly why we're here today. As I said earlier before the Brit Hadashah reading, we are actually celebrating a high holy day today. This is a high holy day. It's not just a regular Shabbat. It's a high holy day Shabbat. It just happens to be one and the same at the same time. So it means you don't have to take an extra day off of work. How good is that? Okay. And by the way, can I just encourage you something early? There is an extra benefit to the cards that Brian had passed out earlier. You want to know what that benefit is? It has all the Holy Day dates already on it for the readings that we have for the Holy Days, which means if you're saying, I wonder which days I should ask off from work for next year, guess what? You can do it a year in advance. Would you look then, right? I really encourage that. Make the Holy Days a priority. Make them something special and amazing, making them beautiful, because these are, these are our appointments with God, right? We actually call them the hamodim, the appointed times. What are they appointed for, just to eat? Or are they appointed to have a time with God? And that's what it's all about. So take time now. You've got all the dates. Now, a year in advance. Talk about advance notice. Ask for the time so you could keep those special times with your brothers and your sisters as a body and have that time with the Lord. But what I want to talk about today, and many of you have heard about it, is that water festival. You've heard of the, the, the water pouring festival. In fact, how many of you had a chance to listen to Rabbi's message last night online? A few of you, good. I would encourage everybody to actually go onto Facebook or go onto YouTube and listen to the message. It was very, very insightful as he was tying together the elements of, and I'm going to be looking at it today, in Isaiah and in the book of John, where Yeshua is talking about that he's the living water, but talking about this outflowing of the beautiful nature of the Holy Spirit that comes from this. I can't do it justice by just talking about it. You really need to listen to it. It's only 22 minutes, but it's 22 minutes of packed, wonderful information. Please take time to listen to that message. It was very, very well done. So I actually want to build on what he talked about last night and talk about this element of this joy of drawing this water. So I'm going to take us back a little bit here and give you a couple scriptures that are tied in to events that essentially, if you were doing our calendar right now, these took place yesterday. Because as you look in the book of John, if you, if you have your scriptures with you, turn there. It's always a good thing to do. If you don't, have you figured out that there's a Bible in front of you? So there's no reason for you not to open up the scriptures. Most of you do it the digital way. Okay, so in, in the future, 
For those of you that are old enough, do you remember when we did concerts in the 80s, and this is really dating some of us, how we had the lighters that we would hang, hang up and, and do this like this? Okay, now you get to really hold up the true light of the Lord in your phones, and you can do it that way. John 7, 37 through 41. On the last and greatest day of the festival, and by the way, it's talking about the festival of Sukkot, Yeshua set, uh, stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, and the first thing you should ask is where Scripture said that. We'll look at that. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Ruach, the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up till that time, the Spirit had not been given since Yeshua had not yet been glorified. In verse 40, it says, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. This is one they're referencing in the book of Deuteronomy, the scripture talks about there will be Moses, but greater than Moses in the future, which is referred to as the prophet. That's what they're referencing. Others said, he is the Messiah, the Mashiach. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? And does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem? I know all of your brains are going, uh-huh. But at that time, they weren't making that connection. You have that connection because you have the blessing of the Word. They didn't have that connection. The town where David lived, verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Yeshua. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So he is making this great statement, he's come to me. This is part of this water-drawing ceremony that took place. Now, there's this mistaken idea that the water-drawing ceremony only took place on the last day of the feast. It's not the case. It took place on every day of the feast. But the Feast of Tabernacles grows in its excitement as it goes along. And I think there's a lesson in that for us as well. Day one of the feast is joyous. I think we should be growing in excitement as we go along in the feast to come up with this, this is this incredible moment, this incredible building, this crescendo of what the feast is supposed to be. And so on the last day of the feast, Yeshua stands up and says, hey, you know what? If you really want living water, come to me. And then the writer says, but it's tied into what the Scripture said before. So let's look at where that's in the Scripture. If you're flipping through Scripture, it's Isaiah 55. By the way, I think Isaiah, my nickname for the book of Isaiah, is it is the Gospel and the Tanakh. There are so many prophetic touch points in Isaiah that when you go through the book of Isaiah, and it's not just a few chapters. I know there's a few that the world is just focused on that, yes, do talk to Messiah. But when you really look at it, and especially this wonderful microcosm between Isaiah 51 and Isaiah 59 in that area, just take time sometime just to read all those chapters, and your mind is going to go kaboom. It's so exciting. We're in Isaiah 55, smack dab in the middle of that. And we'll look at about verses 1 through 8. See if these words don't sound familiar. Come, all ye who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no mercy, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How do you buy something if you don't have any money? Just as a side note here, have any of you received something for free every time? I mean, has that ever happened? Somebody said, here you go, here's something for free. I know it's an oddity but sometimes it happens. Yes, one person has gotten something for free. The rest of you are not telling me the truth. <laughs> you receive it for free, but did it cost somebody something? Yes. So if I say, come get some food and some drink, it's free. It's free to you, but I paid a price so you could have it free. Are you seeing really what the Scripture is saying? I've paid a price so you could freely receive it. Even there is this message of mercy that Brian was talking about. Verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear. Come to me. Listen that you may live. Doesn't that sound like what Yeshua is saying? Hey, you want life? You want you want water that's living? You want something amazing? Come to, what did he say? Me. He's echoing the words here in Isaiah. Verse 4, see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, 
a ruler and commander of the people. So we have this shift here in the language of Isaiah. Obviously, we're listening to God speaking to the people, and then he is addressing the people to whom he has made the conduit of this mercy. Are you catching that shift? See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. By the way, all peoples... Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This is God talking about someone that he has created to be the catalyst to bring all people to living water. Give you one guess who he's talking about. It's nobody on the Republican or Democratic presidential ticket. <laughs> so let's talk about this water drawing ceremony because it is fascinating. Let me just give you a little bit of historical context. I am a history buff. I love finding foundations of why we do things. I'm the type of guy that says, if I'm going to do something, I want to know why I do it. How many of you are with me? So you're like, Let's just do it anyway. It's more fun that way. Okay. I like knowing why I do something. So let's talk about this water ceremony. The water ceremony outside of this little scripture in, in, uh, in the Brit Hadashah is not found anywhere else in scripture. But it was a very, very prominent celebration in Shua's day, so much so that he took advantage of the celebration. You know he was there for the celebration, and he drew attention to the celebration, pointing back to what it was supposed to be pointing to. Isn't it amazing how he does that? You find him in these little, these amazing points of connection all throughout the Scripture. And it also seemed to be very important to the people. And I think it's actually correct when people and historians say that it was pointing to, and the people understood it as having messianic significance. It was really interesting, though. There was an interesting case, and let me say this. One of the things I admire the most about Rabbi David is how he keeps us focused on Torah, the Haftorah, and the Brit Hadashah. Notice how he's very careful not to get us sidetracked on extra-biblical things, because there is no need for this when you have beauty right here. So sometimes when things are talked about from an extra-biblical standpoint, it's to help understand historical context. And so I want to make this disclaimer right now. I'm going to look at a couple extra-biblical sources, not because I'm trying to say they hold the validity or the strength of Torah, but they give clarity to what's happening in culture at that time. Is everybody okay with that? Follow Rabbi David's example and stay focused on the Torah, the Haftorah, and the Brit Hadashah. It has everything you need, okay? But there is an interesting thing, some Jewish extra-biblical writing here. If you want the citation, it's in uh, the tractate known as Sukkah, which is a Talmudic tractate in 48b, just so you have the citation. And it happened around 95 B.C. There was a Sadducee by the name of Alexander Yanai, who was both a king and a high priest, but illegitimately so, who refused to pour the water of the ceremony on the altar. The people did not like it. And at first it's going to sound funny what they did, but they were so unhappy with him that they um, started pelting him with their etrogs. Remember last week when we were waving the lulav and the etrog, which looks like a lemon on steroids? Okay, remember that thing? They started taking that and throwing it at this guy. Now that's sort of the humorous part. The unhumorous part is he decided then to have over 6,000 Pharisees killed. It was not a good day. But obviously, it showed that the people valued this water-pouring ceremony. So what they did is the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam in the city of David. It was done daily, and there they would fill a golden vessel with water at the pool, and then they would go up to the temple through the water gate, accompanied by a sound of a, sh a shofar, and then they'd pour the water, uh, and, and they would pour it so it would flow over the altar. Simple process, but it was done daily. 
And so this particular water ceremony that we step in when we're reading the account of Yeshua talking about it was the final day of the feast because there are seven days of the feast and then you have today, Shemnei Atzeret. This is the eighth day, which sort of is a high day set apart but connected to the feast. And on this day, which is really interesting, the um, extra-biblical writing talks about that this was a huge, exuberant time of rejoicing. That there were a lot of people there. The Levites were playing lyres, trumpets, harps, cymbals, other instruments. Some were singing. There were golden candlesticks. Some citations say they were 75 feet high. That's a big candlestick. And what they would have is they would have young men scaling ladders going up and lighting these large candlesticks all throughout Jerusalem. And it was a time known of great celebration and joy and excitement and dancing and drinking. And this probably there was drinking because isn't that scripture in Deuteronomy says that we're supposed to have strong drink. Let's not emphasize that too much because it was getting people in trouble. And it is very likely that this is the foundation, this exuberance that you were seeing at the time of that point is the foundation of why, like next week when we dance with the Torah and when we re-roll the Torah back to the beginning of Bereshit, about the beginning of Genesis, it is very likely that this is the foundation of where that tradition came from, the celebration at the end of Sukkot. But it's also tied to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12. It says, in that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you have comforted me. Verse 2, pay close attention to this. Surely God is my salvation. Who is your salvation? God. So if Yeshua comes and he says, I'm your salvation, what is he really telling you? Put the algebraic equation together. Is he saying, I am God? Yeah. Okay, I know, it's hard math. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's really where the water drawing ceremony gets more connection. Notice also the book of Isaiah. Verse 4, same chapter. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world, which is really interesting because the other chapter there, Isaiah 55, and especially in chapter 56 and 57, starts talking about this message being proclaimed to all the world going forth from Zion. In fact, verse 6 here says, Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Also, just so you know, so we have a little bit of background too, the waters from the Pool of Siloam were also used in the ordinance of the red heifer. Some of you have been following the red heifer stuff going on over in Israel where they think they had found the red heifer and the, they're guarding that thing under lock and key. I think they have something like two or three that they think might qualify as a red heifer. You know, people ask me how significant that is. I don't, it's like, you know, it's a red heifer. My brain is not worried about purification rituals. It's worried about T-bone steaks which does not make me popular in some circles. But the red heifer was a very big part of what God instructed people to do in Numbers 19, where they're supposed to mix the ashes of a red heifer with water to consecrate those that were serving at the temple. For essentially, it was to purify them at that point. So I'm not trying to make light of the red heifer. It was a very important part, and the, pool, the water in the pools of Siloam were used for those rituals. Pool also had a prophetic connotation in Jewish thought. The Tanakh speaks of a time when, like water is poured out, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Again, will you be surprised to find out that's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 3? And there are many references in other extra-biblical writings to the pools of Siloam being used to anoint kings. It's all part of it. And just so you know, we should be done with this message about 3 o'clock so the pizza can wait. 
But Isaiah 44 is very interesting, which we were looking at it. The outpouring of the Spirit that's referenced in Isaiah 44 was understood to take place during the days of the Messiah, the Anointed One, a descendant of King David, through whom salvation would come to Israel, tying then that back to Isaiah 12. And the Pool of Siloam, when you really look at the name, even bears witness to that idea. If you look at it in the Hebrew, uh, it's Reichat. Ha-shaloach, brachat ha-shaloach, brachat pool, ha-shaloach, if you, if you catch the middle part of that word, Shiloh, as people badly pronounce it in English, where do you hear about Shiloh before? Think back in the book of Genesis. Shiloh is always used as a name to reference the one who is going to be coming in the redemptive messianic role. Jacob pronounced that over his boys. So if you want to go take a look at that, it's there. So this pool is named in reference to one who is being sent for salvation. That's the connection to the messianic connection of the pool. And so the people at the time really felt that there was a messianic connection to it. All right. This pool was sometimes called the well of salvation. It was associated with messianic age and therefore to the Jewish people of Messiah's day, pouring water on the altar at the Feast of Tabernacles was symbolic of the Holy Spirit poured out during the days of Messiah. Interesting. Do you sense the connection? When Messiah was here and then after he was resurrected and then a few days later at Shavuot, what happened? in the temple courts there, what happened? What was poured out upon the people? The Ruach. So was this a fulfillment prophetically of what the Messiah was talking about and what all the scriptures in Isaiah were pointing to? And the answer is absolutely yes. Now, interestingly enough, this whole section here in the book of John, from seven to about 10, If you look at it, it almost follows a chronological pattern of all these amazing things that are happening at the time of the Feast of Sukkot. And yet, if you don't realize what you're watching, you're watching this ebb and flow happening of all this stuff that is happening within roughly a two-day period. It is fascinating to see how this all unfolds. And what we're going to get to here in a little bit, remember the case of the blind man that's there and Yeshua spits rubs it on his eyes. I mean, most people are like, okay, but that's what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, what does he do? He receives sight, yes? Technically, if I read the scriptures correctly and the transition of all this stuff, you are today on the anniversary of that event. Today is the anniversary of that blind man receiving his sight from Yeshua's hands. It's fascinating. Okay? Now, We're going to look at that in a little bit. He had to wash the clay from his eyes, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But let me just give you sort of a summary of all the stuff that's taking place in the book of John here. In John 7, verses 1 through 36, Yeshua goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. So did we know he was going to celebrate the feast? It's obvious. John 7, 37 through 52, Yeshua's comments there are on the last and greatest day of the feast and talking about coming to him for living water. John 8 1 through 11, we're going to look at this little case here, and this is the case of the woman who was essentially caught in adultery. So this happened, if I read the scripture correctly, the next day after Yeshua stands up and says, come, I'm living water, drink from me. There will be rivers of living water that flow forth. It says after that that he was, he was grilled, obviously, he's always being grilled during this time. People questioning his authority, who he is, what he is, why is he there, why did you show up? And then everybody goes and leaves and said so they went all to their own house. And it appears the next day that Yeshua comes back in into Jerusalem. And we get this interesting case here in John chapter 8, I believe it is, yes, starting in verse 1 through 11. Now, it's interesting that a lot of scriptures will say that this actually does not show up in some of the earliest manuscripts, but I will tell you it has the ring of truth. I can't tell you unequivocally that this case with this woman actually is in the earliest manuscripts, but when you understand the message Yeshua was talking about 
at the water pouring ceremony and the message of redemption and hope and grace and mercy that flows through the festival of Sukkot, this makes sense. Let's look at it. Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn, this is the next day, which would be this day, he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the Torah scholars and Pharisees bring in a woman who had been caught in adultery. Remember what did I say was happening the night before? It was like a rip-roaring party, wasn't it? And if there is strong drink, do you think sometimes there are strong bad choices that are made? You are watching the end result of a strong bad choice from the actions the night before, if this all fits the same time frame. After putting her in the middle, you can imagine the humiliation of this poor girl. They say to Yeshua, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. In the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And even the scripture says they were saying this to trap him so they would have grounds to accuse him. But Yeshua knelt down. I want you to pay close attention to that. Yeshua knelt down, started writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept asking him, he stood up and said, the sinless one among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he knelt down again and continued writing on the ground. And when they heard, then began to leave one by one, the oldest one first, until Yeshua was left alone with the woman in the middle. He said, straightening up, Yeshua said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then I don't condemn you either. I want you to catch the picture. The only way you can catch this and is to visually see. You need me over here? I'm going to speak loud. There you go. Yeshua is here. He is talking to all these people. They bring this poor girl. She's right here. And it says, what does he do? He kneels down and he starts writing in the dirt. I'm not going to try to speculate what he was writing. There are people with PhDs that have speculated, and they probably speculated wrong too. I don't know. Does not matter, does it? That's not the object lesson here. He's writing, and he starts writing this, and what does it say he does? It says he gets back up, and he addresses everybody. Any of you guys, without sin, cast that first stone. If I go from this position to a standing position, I am asserting a position of authoritarian power. Everybody catching that? That's authoritarian power. If I am in this position, which he says he goes back to as he's waiting for all the guys to leave, the girl is still right here. Make no mistake about it, she is a sniveling, crying, snotty mess. This is not a good day for her. She's humiliated. She knows she was caught in this act. She knows what the Torah says, and she's up against somebody that these guys think is going to do something about it. Messiah is still on his knees, and she's here, and all it says is he straightens up. Does it say he stands up? No! Straightens up. Here's what I envision, and I know this is my overly dramatic mind. He goes, sweetie. No, no, it's okay. Where are they? <laughs> I don't know. Where are your accusers? I don't know. All right. I don't accuse you either. Please stop doing what you're doing. Change your life. You're going to be okay. This is a different posture, guys. This is the posture of the one who's saying to you, come and drink my living water. Do you catch living water here? Do you catch mercy? Do you catch grace? This is grace. This is mercy. Not being above you when you screw up, but being with you, lifting you up, helping you out of the problem, saying, turn your eyes to me. I know it hurts. I know you're in bad shape. Change. Grow. I'm right here. And then what do you think he did? You think he just goes, well, have fun. Go, go that way. No. You're looking at a gentleman. You're looking at a prince, a king, majestic quality here. What do you think he did? Let me help you out. Come on. There you go. There you go. You gonna be okay? All right. That's a different Messiah. That's the Messiah that Brian was talking about. 
That's the Messiah we serve. I do not serve a king who is distant from his people. My master is with you. And when you mess up, he is there to lift you. Are you catching this? This is Sukkot. This is the blessing. He said, I will extend this to all flesh. Israel, get your act together. But I'm extending this to everybody. That's the king I serve. That event, I think more than anything else, is so, so prophetically strong to this day. This day. You're living the anniversary of that moment. And that was fascinating here. And with this, I'm close to the end. Let me show you something fascinating with the man who was blind. Before you look at that, I want you, and maybe take some time to do this, go back and re-review the end of chapter 8. I'll read you just a little bit of it. Yeshua gets into an argument with the leaders there on who his identity is. Here's where they come at him. This is fun. Can you tell me this wouldn't put me on a fighting position? The Judean leaders responded, aren't we right to say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Wow, those are fighting words. Somebody comes up to you and says you have a demon? They do not like you much. Yeshua answered, I don't have a demon. I honor my father, yet you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who is seeking and judging. Amen, amen, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now we know you have a demon, the Judean leader said to him. Abraham and the prophets died, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. You're not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets also died. Who do you make yourself out to be? <laughs> They're talking to the master of the universe, the one who breathed the Torah into existence. That is a dumb question. Yeshua answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Listen closely to his words. It is my Father who gives me glory, the one of whom you say he is our God, yet you do not know him, but I know him. If I say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Yet I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was thrilled. Then the Judean said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Yeshua answered, and do not let anybody tell you there's not a place in the scripture where Yeshua doesn't clearly say he is the Lord, because he says it right here. Amen, amen, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, I do not quibble with the idea that Yeshua is the master of the universe. So with all that, they're having an argument with Yeshua about his lineage, who he is. And Yeshua keeps referring to who? His father. Is he referring to Jacob? No. Because earlier, they start accusing Yeshua of being illegitimate, don't they? They know who he is. They think they know all about him. And so they think he's illegitimate. But there is an interesting thing that comes up here. John chapter 9. And this is where we get to this blind guy. As Yeshua was passing by, essentially he's leaving the temple area. He saw a man who had been blind since birth. How long has he been blind for? Since birth. I know this is a quiz. Okay. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You can just hear Messiah go, duh. Yeshua answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be brought to light on him. There was a thought process there that if something bad happened to you, it was because of sin. Guys, bad things happen. Remember what Rabbi said? Bad things are bad things, and sometimes they're brought about by sin. Sometimes it's just a bad thing. It is not necessarily indicative of where somebody sinned or not. And just because somebody is righteous and does righteous things doesn't all of a sudden mean they're going to get a Ferrari. That's not the way this works. 
Yeshua answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be brought to light in him. Who? In him. This man has a purpose. This man who is about to have his life transformed on this eighth day has a purpose. Verse 4, we must do the work of the one who sent me so long as it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went away, washed, and came back seeing. It is so sad that we read the scripture about that fast. Because you're missing volumes. If the man is blind, where is his posture? Where is he probably at? I know I would drive Eddie crazy if I did this on the ground again here, so I'm not going to. Where is the man if he's blind? Is he standing, walking around? Or is he probably sitting, begging? He's probably sitting, begging. So Messiah walks by, sees the blind guy, and what does it says he does? He spits in the ground, and then he rubs it on the guy's eyes. First off, most of us think that's disgusting. How many of you would let some random guy come over, spit on the ground, and rub it on your eye? And you're thinking that because you're not thinking in context of the time, because there is something that is at play here. What was the argument Yeshua just was having with all the leaders? Who his patrony came from? Who was his daddy? Now, this comes back to extra-biblical stuff, but in the Talmud, it does state that there is a tradition that the saliva of the firstborn of a father heals, but that of the firstborn of a mother doesn't heal. Now, I'm not saying this is truth, but I am saying this thought process obviously was permeating at this time. And if you want a citation, Talmud tractate Basabatra 126b. Later on in that same commentary, there is a rabbi who adds that the healing properties of saliva is really only referring to its use as an eye medication. Are you catching something at play here? Don't you think that Yeshua had the ability to go, see? Why did he need to be spitting in the ground? Because he is challenging, face-to-face challenging, this notion that he is not of his father. Because if they felt this, that the spit of the firstborn son of the father would heal, then he is clearly saying, I'm proving to you who my father really is. And by the way, I challenge you, look up a picture from the gates where this blind man was sitting to the pool of Siloam is a treacherous, horrible, long walk. And Yeshua says, go do it. That was no easy task. So the guy went and did it, and what did it say happened? He saw. What if he didn't do it? He would have been blind till birth. So John 9, therefore the neighbors and those who had seen him as a beggar kept saying, isn't it this one who used to sit and beg? This is the one, some said, but others said, no, it looks like him, but it can't be him. And the man kept going, it's me, it's me, it's me. To the point that finally the leaders of the area drug him in, grilling him on how he could possibly be healed. And then they started claiming that he was a sinner and he shouldn't have been healed. It was a crazy account. But Yeshua allowed him to testify to exactly what the book of Isaiah was talking about and to testify to the fact that he truly was who Yeshua said he was. And you get that culminated at the very end. Verse 25, the man replied, I don't know whether he's a sinner, talking about Yeshua, they're asking about this. But one thing I do know, and you're going to recognize these words, is that I was blind, but now I see. So they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? (laughs) What do you think that message reverberated in their ears? I told you already, and you didn't listen, the man responded. What do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Ooh, yeah. 
Okay, fun words. And they railed at him and said, you're a disciple of that one, but we're disciples of Moses. The man replied to them, that's amazing. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone fears him and does his will, he hears this one. And since the beginning of the world, no one has ever heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. From the testimony of one who had been blind all of his life, he testifies to the very majesty and the holiness of the King of Kings. And they replied to him, you were born completely in sin and you're teaching us? And they threw him out. So you sure heard that they had thrown him out. Finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now I want you to place yourself in this question. The man answered, who is he, sir? So he'd been healed by Yeshua. And Yeshua asked, do you understand, by the way, Son of Man was a euphemism for the Messiah. And this man says, who is he? He just offended Yeshua, not knowing who Yeshua really was as one who was sent from God. Did you catch that? And he didn't even know who he was. And he says, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Yeshua said, you've seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. And Yeshua said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who don't see may see, and the ones who do see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees that were there said, Hey, really? What are you saying? We're not blind too, are we? And Yeshua said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no sin. What did he just say? If you were like this man, and had been healed, and had been receptive to the message, you right now would not be in sin. But you say, we see, so your sin remains on you, because the truth is, you don't see at all. We are stepping into a period of history right now, guys, when there are going to be a lot of people that really don't know what I would call him to be the real Jesus, but they are being introduced to the Son of Man, and they are willing to be like the woman who was caught and just say, I need help. And you know what? The master of the universe is willing to get down into the dirt and lift your head, even somebody who doesn't know, who doesn't practice, but who is willing to trust The master of the universe is willing to lift that person up. How much more so you? How much more so the entire nation of Israel? How much more so the world? This is the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the festival of Sukkot. Revelation 21, verse 4, in conclusion. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain any longer, for the former things have passed away. And the one seated upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, Write, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give from the spring of water of life. To the woman who needs me, I'll give her life. To the blind man who can't see, who's willing to trust, I'll give him life. If you're so steeped into your intellectual superiority, you will be blind. Trust. The one who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That's the king we serve. That's an amazing king. Again, let me just encourage you, please, please, please. This is a serious, serious week. Do not underestimate the serious nature of what's going on in Eretz Israel. Do not underestimate what's going on in this world. Our world is shrouded in darkness. Our world does need our Messiah. But our world needs to see a Messiah and a king that is not just a free-for-all Messiah, one who has a standard, one who has righteousness, but one who is able to lift up and help people transform. That's the king that I worship. I know you do too. Right?
Thank you, Aaron. What an amazing word. Amen. Well, before we close, I want to share just a couple of quick things with you that we didn't share earlier. Next week, we will celebrate Simchat Torah, like we said, and we will also be celebrating the anniversary of Stephen Rose's Bar Mitzvah. So that'll be really great. Stephen, congratulations. How many years? Do you know off the top of your head? A lot. <laughs> um, we're also, next week, we're also going to be praying over new members. We have um, a group of, of, of folks who are becoming new members. They've taken the membership class and gone through the process. And Rabbi David will be contacting those people this week, and we'll be welcoming them into the synagogue um, and praying for them. We'll also have Oneg, of course, next week. So invite any friends who would like to see the Torah scroll rolled back, and they can have lunch with us together. And... Something really cool, and it really lines up with the, the, the water theme of Sukkot. We are having a, um, a water immersion class, or tevilah, like baptism, right? We're having a class next Shabbat, next Saturday at 1.30 p.m. to learn a little bit more about water immersion, about tevilah, and how it's a very Messianic Jewish thing to do. Um, and if you would like to participate in that, if you have put your faith in Messiah and you would like to have this public declaration of your faith in Messiah through immersion, uh, maybe you maybe you you had water immersion when you were younger, maybe as a baby or a child. If you'd like to do it again, or if you've never done it before, you're welcome to join that class and learn more. It will be next week at 1:30 p.m. Uh, after the oneg, or sort of during the oneg time, and then the following Saturday, on October 21st at 2 p.m., we'll be having an immersion, and that will happen at Pam and John Burns's house um, in their pool. And all of us are invited to go and to be a part of that and participate as well. So next week, 1.30 is the class. And then the week following on October 21st at 2 p.m. is the actual immersion that we'll have. Okay, so let's stand together and we'll close with the ironic benediction. If you'd like, you can gather with friends and family. And we will, um, after that, we'll go over together. Hello, friend. Hello, friend. Would you like to, would, you have such a beautiful voice to sing this. Would you, are you in the mood? <laughs> I'm always, my, my melody is different than the same. The words are the same. All right, there you go. Here's your yeah. turn. <laughs> different melody, but here we go. Yevalecha kadonai v'yishmarecha Yoer adonai p'nevelecha the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of Messiah Yeshua, the Prince of Peace, Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>